0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations, Through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he put this question to his disciples. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say he is John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he said, who do you say I am? Then Simon Peter spoke up. You are the Christ, he said, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Simon, son of Jonah, you are a happy man, because it was not flesh and blood that revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. So now I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the underworld can never hold out against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be considered bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be considered loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples strict orders not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So this is a very well-known passage, something we're very familiar with, something that we all know from just a month ago when we heard the, the this Gospel for the Feast of St. Peter and St. Paul. Now, let's recap a little bit. Where are we? We're in Matthew 16, which is right in the middle, so it's a pivotal point in the Gospel. It's a turning point because immediately after this declaration of faith as we will see next week Jesus for the first time will announce his passion so up till then it's been building up to the identity of Jesus who Jesus is and this is the climax of that revelation which comes through the faith of Peter and after that after who Jesus is it's what Jesus does what has he come to do exactly and, of course, if he's the Christ, the Messiah is come to save his people, and he will then, after immediately after this confession lay lay out his plan of how he is going to save his people, and that's why it's not going to go so well as we shall see next week. But for this week, this pivotal moment of this declaration of faith, the disciples have seen and heard enough to be able to sort of make up their mind at the at at the minute of who jesus actually is so jesus is not asking this question of them straight after calling them in matthew 4 he's not asking this question after this his first miracle he has spoken an awful lot he has done an awful lot of signs and now he's asking for their opinion for their much more than an opinion actually for their faith is inviting their faith we're in the region of caesarea philippi and this is in the north on the other side of the jordan equivalent of galilee on the other side it's in the country of dan and it's this region called panyas so we can see caesarea philippi it's a region which is almost pagan because it's right at the border of so many pagan territories. Damascus, so the, the Assyrian the Syria, is not far at all. We can imagine this region filled with people who do not belong to the faith of Israel, polytheistic people, uh, different gods. Of course, it's a region which is under Roman control, which is why there are in this region of Caesarea Philippi, named after a Roman emperor. So it was Philip the Tetrarch, who was ruler of the territory, who then called this capital, Caesarea Philippi, as a token of service to the emperor, reminding everybody who's in charge. So it's under Roman authority. You have the the reminder that who's ruling there, who is in charge there, who has the the uh, utmost power there it's the roman emperor we have it in the name but also in this region of the north of galilee you have these sources of the jordan this is where the jordan river begins and these sources were attributed divine powers but not from the god of israel there there were places where you had the cult of the god pan hence the region named panyas and you have Baal as well, who is worshipped there. So it's a very pagan territory, And, and it's possibly the utmost north point that Jesus would go into, remembering with the caveat, nevertheless, that when he was visiting the region between Tyre and Sidon, it might have been even more north than that, but we don't precisely know where that was but he's just come from there and now he's in Caesarea Philippi so he's as far as Jerusalem as is ever going to be and yet as we'll see next next Sunday he will be then telling them he's heading towards Jerusalem to be to be crucified and then to rise again so this point of reminding us of the power of the gods, the power of religion that the gods that are not the god of israel so the power of the idols and also the power of the roman emperor and in this this place which is owned by others as it were that we have this declaration of faith in jesus who is then confessed by peter to be the christ the son of the living god in the midst of of a of a country that doesn't seem to belong to him at all and is unable to recognize him we are in the midst not only of a lack of faith in the true god as it were from the roman side and from the polytheistic side but we also are in a a moment of an utter lack of faith in the gospel itself in the gospel narrative we've just had some very rough time with both the disciples and the Pharisees, so it's not just the Pharisees who express lack of faith. Jesus has, has been just had in Matthew 16 1 to 12 uh, some ferocious encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees and then he had to tell off his disciples for their lack of faith. So uh, in Matthew 16 1 to 12, the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So another sign. Now, Jesus has has just uh, multiplied bread, the loaves, twice in Matthew 14 and then Matthew 15. So he's just done that. So if that's not a sign, we don't really know what is. And then he's also walked on water. But no, they come to put him to the test. So there's a a decisive, a determined here refusal of faith on their part. They will not accept the signs that they're given. They will only accept the signs of their own choosing. And so Jesus pointed that out to them. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. So you can see that sign. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. In other words, all the signs are there, but you can't see them. It's in front of you. Then he berates them. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. And then the disciples have a bit of a problem because they, they come with him on the other side. They have forgotten to bring bread. And... Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What would Jesus mean by that? It's quite mysterious, but perhaps it is referring to their lack of faith, which is is just reproached them with. And they said to one another, is it because we have bought no bread? So they completely misunderstand what Jesus is trying to say. And becoming aware of it, Jesus said, you of little faith why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How could you fail to perceive that I was not speaking about bread? So they can't see the signs either. They can't see the sign. They can't perceive and even Matthew ends up saying he, they, they they understood that he had not told them to be aware of the yeast of bread, but of the teaching of Pharisees and Sadducees. So they, they sort of get to some point at the end. But Jesus is actually, in this gospel that we have on Sunday, he's actually showing an enormous trust in his disciples that when they got everything completely wrong, he now asked them a question so he he's just reproached them with lack of faith and now he's asking them to make a confession of faith. So it's quite a moment that is chosen in the midst of a region which is really deprived of faith because it's basically pagan. It's under the rule of the emperor and he's talking to people who have not yet shown great faith. So there is something of... The expectation of Jesus that he, he gives them quite a lot of credit here and what is interesting is that Jesus begins he has the initiative of the dialogue when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi he put this question to his disciple who do people say the son of man is that's very rare usually the narrative never sort of begins with the question asked by jesus usually it's someone who comes to jesus and asks a question or it's someone to come asking for a need asking for and then jesus answers back with a question perhaps uh, and so we have something that just happened again in matthew 9 where jesus asked about faith matthew 9 27, 30 as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying loudly, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were open. So there is one question of Jesus, which is very personal. Do you? Do you believe that i'm able to do this and unlike a lot of the questions of jesus jesus doesn't actually answer his own question a lot of the time when jesus asks a question he'll end up on answering it himself so for example when you have the paralytic being brought through the roof and jesus knows what the pharisees are thinking when he says your sins are forgiven and he says why are are these thoughts in your hearts they haven't said anything but jesus asks why are these thoughts in your and then he explains to them do you not believe what is easier and again he he never waits really for an answer from them because he already knows what they think but here it's a completely different kind of question on jesus's part it's not a question that jesus himself will answer unlike a lot of the questions that are asked of him by outsiders or that he himself will ask and And it's a question that only his disciples can answer. But really, there are two questions. There are two questions, and we'll look at both of them in order. The questions of Jesus and then the vocation of Peter. This is going to be the overarching themes I'm going to look at. The first question that Jesus asks is, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's how he he introduces the topic of his own identity in a very straightforward way, much more straightforward than, than usually is the case when he does a miracle and then they worship him, as, as happened when when he walked on the water, when he finally climbed in the, in the ship, they, they worshipped him. But he didn't say explicitly, you know, well, he, do, he did actually, he said, I am, it is I, do, you, do not be afraid but he revealed his identity through a sign. Here is not performing any sign as such. He's beginning with a simple, straightforward question. Who do people say the son of man is? So it's a very third-person question, both in terms of who do people, them, people outside, they, third person, and the son of man. So he talks about himself in the third person. So it's all very distant. We, we create this sort of distance with the topic, as it were. And what's very odd about this question as well is that he gives the answer in the question. He's not saying who do people say I am, who do people say the son of man is, so that there's no mistake that whatever the people may be saying, the son of man is the son of man. His identity is not defined by what people will be and end up saying about him. So who do people say the son of man is is not a question in order to identify to try to work out who jesus is jesus knows perfectly well who he is it's just to to sort of bring out perhaps to trigger the the reflection of the disciples about himself it's easier to talk about someone else than to talk about ourselves and so jesus starts with this third person distanciation but introduces the topic. Now, what's very interesting is the answers that the disciples give. Who do people say the Son of Man is? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. The greatest possible names. But the point of references of the people, therefore in, you know, this list of names, are great men of the past no one greater could possibly be coming up god as it were has already done everything he could possibly have done by raising those great prophets for us and and it can't possibly the the person this preacher from galilee can't possibly be greater than these people so we we shouldn't think of it as derogatory it's very it's a high compliment that the people would pay jesus in thinking he's one of those because these are the greatest name of their history of dealings with god but they can't imagine that someone greater would be turning up on their doorstep and and talking to them in the marketplace interestingly all of these people are dead they are of the past and they have already performed their jobs, as it were. So we only think, if you want, in this, in this common understanding, this generalised understanding of the people, we think in terms of what God has already done without being open to what God can possibly do now or in the future. And that's quite interesting. So there are dead, however, that would imply... The resurrection that they would have risen from the dead if jesus was any one of those one of the prophets meaning one of the many prophets that have come and that were authentic prophets so if jesus was any one of those he would be risen from the dead but not in the sense of his resurrection which will have a completely different meaning so the people do get something jesus is a prophet but he's much more than the prophet. Jesus will rise from the dead, but in a completely different way, not just to perform a service, but as a, a new, completely new form, new experience of human life that is freed from sin and death, not just as a messenger to to sort of bring people to their senses but as a giver of new life and to compare the list of the dead people as it were that is uh, brought up by who do people say i am we have the answer of peter in contrast who says the son of the living god and here peter really gets it remarkably setting jesus in the sphere not just of the living here and now But of the living one, the one who is life itself, who is in front of them. So he's much greater in that sense than any of those who were just pointing to the living God at the service of the living God. Here is the son of the living God, the living God himself, sharing the life of the living God. So that's that first question third party quite distant and not bad answers but wrong answers (laughs) wrong answers yet pointing to something to a desire for for life somewhat wanting someone to be to rise from the dead because and in some way in a bit of a nostalgic because these people were so great we need them back we need them to sort out us you know it's a sort of a nostalgia it was so much better in the past because they had those people guiding guiding we had those people guiding us now we don't quite know so we want more of the same but here is something much better radically different from which something which we'll have to get used to And that's precisely next Sunday's gospel is going to be the getting used to that novelty, which is very disturbing when Jesus actually will bring up the subject of his his death and resurrection. So that's the first question. Then Jesus goes much more personal. So we move away from the third person to second and first person. Who do you say I am? And because the distance has been already established... It prevents the disciples from saying the same thing. Now they have to come up with their personal conviction. And there's a few aspects of this question that are profoundly touching, I think. First of all, that Jesus is not, again, asking this question, knowing the answer, or if he does know the answer of what's in their hearts, is not. Is giving them the freedom and the dignity of giving their own answer and in fact it's an answer only they can give even if Jesus knows sort of the content of the words that Peter will come out with it is Peter's personal answer it belongs to him and only he can give it Jesus can't give it for him and the same applies to the disciples the same applies to any disciple of Jesus Jesus wants a personal answer who do you say that I am? Is actually interested. Not that he's defined by anybody's answer. He's already there, the son of man. The son of man meaning God, obviously. But he wants, he, he allows the freedom of discernment and the freedom of expression and the freedom of commitment that this answer, this personal answer implies he invites it that's what he desires he does want our answer which is extraordinary because he doesn't need their answer to be who he is he absolutely doesn't need us as god and yet he relies and and invites and and seeks our answer of faith which is extraordinary so who do you say i am a a question which seems to leave everybody else silent, but Peter will be the one to answer. And, And here is Peter's greatness, really. Then Simon Peter spoke up, you are the Christ, he said, the son of the living God. So Peter speaks the identity of Jesus, and then Jesus in return speaks a new identity for Peter, reminding him of his father so it's the same person Simon son of Jonah it's not a new person detached from his history detached from his past detached from his origin it is absolutely the same person with his personal history all of that is taken in in that new identity but on top of it he elevates Peter to a new level of identity to a new level with him Simon, son of Jonah, you are a happy man because it was not flesh and blood that revealed this to you but my father in heaven another fatherhood, not the son of Jonah but the son of the father now, now I say to you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And unlike the response of Peter which doesn't define Jesus, it just is a confession of faith to, towards that reality which is in front of him. But here Jesus really defines this new Peter. You are Peter. It's a creative word. We can think of the words of creation, let there be light. This is exactly, we we have here a new reality, the the sacramental use of words which make present a divine reality. Uh, This is what happens to Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. This is not just for Peter then, it's that, that new identity is for everybody has jesus referred to himself as the son of god before in the gospel of saint matthew not really not so explicitly we have nothing as explicit as the answer of peter the closest we've come to just before was with uh, jesus walking on water this is in matthew 14 22 to 32 uh, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. And when he says it is I, it's egoimi, so it's the I am. Do not be afraid. And and then they call him, but Jesus is called Lord throughout in a very explicit way, he's called the son by the father at the baptism. And then it will come later after this passage and the transfiguration in Matthew 17. So this is my beloved son. So the father calls him his son. And then at the end, when he climbs into the The boat. So we have Jesus again asking them about their faith. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, "Truly, you are the Son of God." So that's as close as we've come to this before, but now it's it's really this personal in a cold setting. This is a a very vivid and 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 an emotional setting filled with a dramatic event. So they've just seen Jesus walk on water, they've seen Peter walk on water, they've seen Jesus climbing to the boat, the the wind and the the storm ceases, so they're overwhelmed. And we could explain this worshipping by this emotional overwhelming uh, without much reflection going on. I mean, that would be, again, that, that... might be very prejudiced of us however in Matthew 16 with the, the confession of Peter nothing dramatic of the sort has happened in fact they've just been berated by Jesus for their lack of faith and now suddenly out of the blue Jesus asked that question so that question is really uh, asked to, to their understanding not from their immediate experience but Jesus is, is expecting them to have reflected on this already And that doesn't mean that experience shouldn't be there. But that means that like what he was asking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees to read the signs of the time, he's asking it of all of us to be able to read his actions, to be able to understand his word, to use our intelligence so that we can perceive who he is, who is in front of us. That's what he's asking them. Who do you say the Son of Man is? No, who do people say the Son of a Man is? Do, who do you say I am? I want to know what you think. So this is a very um, intellective question, as it were. It's, it's addressed to their understanding, to their discernment. And then what's interesting is, is that Jesus calls Peter Simon. So we have the change of name, the change of identity, the, the vocation. But three times already in Matthew has Jesus called peter simon and every time there was a call there was a vocation so we had the first call of peter was in matthew 4 after the temptation in the desert matthew 4 18 to 20 as he walked by the sea of galilee he saw two brothers simon who is called peter and andrew his brother casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen and he said to them follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So that's the first call of Peter. And it's one that he had together with Andrew, his brother, and then James and Johns. So it's not an, an individual call. I mean, there's a group there. However, it is individual insofar as they all have to make that decision and no one can make it for them. But they, there is a sense of togetherness, that they're all crazy together, as it were, to follow this complete unknown man calling them from the shore but that's their first movement and the call must always be understood as both what jesus says so the, the actual call follow me and the response if they you know so their their response marks as it were their election their response marks their choice it's not imposed on them they have to do something in order to respond. And the call is fulfilled in the response. That's the first call. The second call of Peter is in Matthew 10, 1 to 8. Again, Jesus summons his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirit to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First Simon, also known as Peter. So again, Simon, Peter. This change of name, which we have throughout the Bible, from Abraham to Jacob, Paul and Saul. So it's a change of life. It's a change of mission as well. And in fact, in every call of Jesus to Peter, it's not just a static sort of, um, here is your identity, but, not, you know, but with the identity comes a mission. So the first call, fishers of men, you will be a fisher of man, whatever that means. So they come and follow him. And the mission is gradually revealed every time. Then in Matthew 10, Jesus gives a very clear instruction, but he gives them authority of unclean spirit to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. So it's much more than proclaiming the kingdom and, and gaining people for the kingdom. This is an actual power against the forces of evil here on earth. The forces of evil are the forces of sin so the demons the unclean spirits and the diseases uh, and the sickness which kill us that's the power of evil and jesus gives them that power to deal with evil here on earth and then jesus has very clear instructions throughout chapter 10 of what they are to be doing so this vocation is a mission and here with Matthew sixteen, we go even deeper. Now it is a very personal mission and call of of Peter. it's if you want, it's a vocation within a vocation because Peter disciple Peter apostle, and Peter head of the church they're all I- imbricated in each other. so Peter doesn't cease to be a disciple because he's suddenly become an apostle in Matthew ten, and neither now that Jesus makes him the head of the church does he cease to be both a disciple. And an apostle, he retains his identity as disciple and apostle and head, and the missions that go with him. Because the missions are not contradictory either; they all are implied. But the power he gets becomes increases ever, ever more, uh, so that now it's not just power over the forces of evil here on earth, the demons, evil spirits, uh, affecting people and diseases and the sickness as in matthew 10 now is the gates of the underworld it's the gates of the underworld and it's the power to bind and loose so that that power that peter is given reaches heaven it's over the spiritual world it's much greater and so as Peter has responded every time to Jesus by following him, by and, and certainly one of the major events in his life has been to come out of the boat and walk on the water with Jesus. So Peter responds to the call of Jesus every time. And so every time Jesus sort of, as it were, increases this call and increases the mission, uh, the responsibility, but also the power, which is utterly now spiritual, the greatest possible power whatever you bind on earth shall be considered bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth shall be considered loosed in heaven it's it's a divine power almost so and that's where in in jesus giving that power to to peter he reveals himself he reveals himself very powerfully now all of these are given in the gospel as identity of jesus jesus calls himself the son of man now we have the son of man passage in daniel 7 and and in daniel it's obviously god it's a divine being that is called the son of man and it's a bit of a paradoxical name for a divine being but but this is this is a divine vision of daniel so in in daniel 11 to 15 uh, and, and especially 13, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. We shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here is a, a perfect echo of what Jesus is talking about in the gospel. The, the 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 church that he will be, the guests of the underworld can never hold out against it. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. The, the, the prophecy of Daniel describes the kind of power that Jesus talks about here. And the power that he gives Peter is obviously his own. And so he manifests himself as that son of man of Daniel. So he's the son of man. Then Peter calls him the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, the one Israel was waiting for. And so in in saying that Jesus is the Christ, Peter is definitely going against what the people say about Jesus. He's not one of the prophets because all the prophets would be announcing the Christ. The purpose of the prophets would be to, to prepare for the coming of the Christ from Elijah to Jeremiah to John the Baptist. But here is the reality that was expected all that time. Here it is. So here is the contrast that whereas they look to the past to to get one of the guys from the past to sort them out, Peter recognizes, no, God is doing new things here. Here is the Christ. And this faith is extraordinary because in front of him, visibly, was just a preacher from Galilee. Nothing like the vision of Daniel you know, with the eyes of the flesh, you couldn't see that. So the faith of Peter is fundamental. This is the, the rock on which the church is built. So the Christ, the son of the living God. And then in the very words of Jesus, he reveals his identity. When he talks about my father in heaven, it's not flesh and blood who has revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Jesus claims his sonship as the son of the father son of the living god so you have a whole trinitarian implication but this is very much like what we find in the gospel of saint john where jesus constantly speaks about the father and then when he says keys of the kingdom of heaven and the power uh, it means that jesus owns these things jesus already has all of that uh, I has the church i will build my church it's not you know you i will build i will ask you to build the church it's mine all of this belongs to me and i give you authority to use it um but there's no transfer or possession the church doesn't become so much the church of peter as the church entrusted to peter by jesus but it is his church my church And the power to bind and lose is a power that belongs primarily and supremely to Jesus. It's not the power of Peter now. It is only by virtue of it being communicated by Jesus. So that's who Jesus reveals himself to be. He reveals himself to be literally the one that Daniel spoke about, the one who has power over kingdoms, over, over dominations the one that is an eternal power because all of this implies eternity as well so when you think these words were spoken in in that pagan land ruled by the roman emperor uh, and and subject to to earthly powers these become very significant but with the human person we find also from that text this very puzzling amazing amazing but very puzzling choice of god and all of us can ask ourselves, why why Peter? Why didn't Jesus choose someone better than Peter? And we can ask this of many th- people and many realities. We can ask ourselves, why Israel? Why did God choose to reveal himself to Israel? And just like the question of Jesus, you know, who do people say the son of man is, we can ask it about other people, why my parish priest why my parents why you know we can ask it of why the pope we can ask it of many many people that god has obviously chosen for purpose but primarily we can ask it of ourselves why me why did god choose me why am i the only christian in my setting in my workplace why am i the only christian in my family why why am i the only one that i know who has the gift of faith why me and and many i mean certainly if you're like me i i've asked my this question of myself many times why me why am i why did god call me to be here as a sister when i i'm so weak and i don't know much and you know i am the last person who who is qualified to do to to fulfill this incredible mission that he has for me so this why me question um, there's no answer to it except the freedom of god that is what god has chosen and and we 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 can't really set ourselves to explain and rationalize God's choices. Of course, it will some reason will be revealed and and it all has to do with salvation, of course. Not just our personal salvation, but the salvation of of the world, of those around us, the designs of God that work for the good, his desire for us, his invitation for us, which is the same as for the apostles to grow in faith in him in spite of appearances, to constantly grow in our trust, in our capacity to rely on him. So the choice of God. Now, one text that is absolutely beautiful about the choice of God and his absolute freedom and and determination, which belongs to him alone and which we shouldn't really question is Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 11 it's about israel being israel being reminded of its vocation for you are a people holy to the lord your god the lord your god has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people his treasured possession it was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the lord set his heart on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples it was because the lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And in the choice of God, we know God. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who maintains covenant loyalty with those who love him and keep his com- commandments so we have both the completely gratuitous selection of god his choice which is supremely free and supremely loving and lo- and it's not so much a choice of preference um, perhaps because than a choice of design because in in choosing israel he's is is open salvation for for the whole world as we know through Christ. So he chose Israel, yes, in time over 2000 years, but in order to manifest his salvation to the ends of the earth. And in the same way, he can choose you and me for the sake of others. So it's not that we're preferred, but we are elected. We are chosen by God and given a mission which we alone can fulfill. And this is mysterious and it's we have the gospel of the workers in the vineyard today and where some have been working all day some have come up the last hour they get the same reward and really there is we shouldn't be questioning the choices of God he knows what he's doing much more difficult than questioning his choices is to trust him and but to trust also his utmost generosity that he does not prefer those who have worked all day to the ones who have come last he gives everyone the same and in fact he gives himself this is he gives everything he has that's we see that in the eucharist god gives us in jesus he gives himself entirely to us whether we come at the last minute or Um, or have been Catholics all our life now this is not uh, a justification to turn up late for mass of course but God gives us and wants to give us the fullness of himself and that is universal but some are chosen to be by him to carry out a specific mission so that this salvation can be open to the whole world the choice of Peter is precisely for the church to be what it is to be a universal sign and cause of salvation a sacrament whereby people find him and and are transformed through through communion with him jesus manifests uh, the, the 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 person's response to the election of god is crucial and again that's why peter is remarkable because he always responds sometimes he doesn't respond in a great way but he always he's always there he's committed he's not just accepting truths and then thinking about it and and taking them as notions as something okay fine uh, as if in this distant in this third person sort of thing he's completely committed in it what jesus says impact and transforms his life and he allows this to happen and he responds with those signs of the times that Jesus asked the Pharisees and the Sadducees and asked the, 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 the disciples to think about and to respond to. They are spoken in words and deeds. At, in, at this moment in Matthew 16, Jesus has spoken an awful lot and he has done an awful lot. And this is something that is still the case and is still the case for us, that God has manifested himself in words and deeds in Jesus. And this is what we celebrate in the liturgy. We have the word of God and the act, the saving act of his sacrifice for us, inviting us to enter in communion with him through the Eucharist. So word and deeds, these are the signs and it's not just the Eucharist or the sacraments, but also the word and deeds of the people of the church who proclaim uh, the salvation of God, who proclaim the gospel and who act on it so that you have all the the. Charitative action of the church is included under the deed of god the work of god the miracles that jesus um, performed two thousand years ago uh, his body continues as it were uh, sometimes not so miraculous but with the same charity the same love of the holy spirit inspiring um every every one of the actions of the body of the church done in charity so these words and deeds are also seen in our own personal life. God reveals himself to us and expects of us an answer, a personal answer. And so just as we can see the history of salvation of God intervening into human history and transforming it into something that is salutary, whereby something new comes in and we have life, eternal life in, in Jesus through the mighty word indeed of the passion death and resurrection which have been explained to us and will be explained next week uh, in the same way we can see in our life the word and deeds of the lord and if we can't uh, perhaps we, we we like the Sadducees and the pharisees unable to perceive the signs all of us catholic at some point or other at mass we hear those words this is my body which is given for you word and deed we can hear those words but this response of who do you say that i am is asked of us as well so god manifests himself to us but he invites us to use our intelligence to use our our ability to perceive who he is and to place our faith in him and this is something he can't do for us just as when Jesus asked that question of the disciples, he cannot answer for them. It has to be their answer. And then just like Peter, in a, a, a Christian life, we have layers of vocations. So our first vocation is, is as baptized members of Christ is the highest, actually, the, the entry. There's nothing greater than to be a son or daughter, daughter of God. Nothing more lofty. This is our final identity, our ultimate identity, and if you know, th- this is the reality which we will uh, hopefully see in its full, in its fullness, in heaven. But it is our first vocation. But on top of it, there are other vocations. For example, I can think of Saint Dominic, our founder, who started off discerning. Uh, he, he joined the, the Augustinian canons, so he wanted to be a contemplative, to be just reading uh, contemplating the word of god and, and praising praying god in 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 the liturgy and then when he was sent by the king on a mission which was completely secular which was to get some woman to marry the son of the king of uh, spain or whatever i mean um he he came across a need in the church and that made him change his vocation radically or rather he discovered a new vocation which was to preach the word which he had contemplated and not only to preach the word but then another vocation to start an order on top of it but how did he get to this you know ultimate vocation of being a founder because he was first a baptized member of christ a disciple and because as he lived his discipleship faithfully he discerned that vocation to go deeper as an Augustinian canon and then to go even deeper as a founder and all that was fraught with difficulties but it had to do with him being able to perceive the call of the Lord and to respond to it and so we can never think of ourselves as well my life is over I found my vocation I know what I'm supposed to do and that's going to be that the Lord is always calling us there's always something the Lord is calling us to do for his church at any moment, and one of the most underrated but the most necessary vocation that is in the church is to pray, to pray for sinners, to pray for the conversion of sinners, that includes all of us, to pray for the church, to pray for the world. This might be the most useful thing that the Lord is calling us to, and the one we run away most from because we're so distracted with other things that we think are more important. But if we fail in this vocation, the work of God will not be accomplished. He depends on us as he depends on Peter. Now, this is utterly crazy. And this is something we find in the church that it's so hard to believe that God would make himself dependent on on such frail human creatures. Uh, and, and that's the source of sometimes scandals in the church that it just doesn't You know, how can God give this immense power, spiritual power, over heavenly realities, the power to bind and to lose, so to forgive sins, a power which is utterly divine, to people like us, who are sinners. How can God trust us so much? And perhaps the the reason why he trusts us is because He wants to enter into a real reciprocity with us. And that begins when we begin to trust him. He knows what he's doing. And so, you know, the church in all its um, visible sort of limitations looks very much to us like trying to believe for Peter that this Galilean preacher standing in front of me is the Christ that 2000 years of Israel have been waiting for is the son of the living God. And now we are called to believe that the church is his church. In all the poverty that we can see, that he is there, that He is at work, that the word and deeds of Christ in his church are not finished, that the call of Christ is still for us today to, to be his members, And to proclaim his word and to perform his deeds in his name as his members. Because the church is indestructible. It looks like the most frail thing, but it is indestructible. That is that promise of Jesus. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Here is a, a new reality. A new reality which is fully human. It's full of us and it's fully divine. And what makes it indestructible and this supreme power and and will give it this ultimate victory is precisely that divinity that God has bound himself to the church forever. And we can find this as hard to believe as we can find it hard to believe that God could call me and be interested in me and be interested in the response of my faith and, and in what I think of him. Yes, it is very hard to believe, but that's the choice of God that's what he has chosen. He has chosen us. And in this choice of Peter, we can see that he has chosen, in fact, every single one of us. And is interested in the response of every single one of us. And not as an external response of opinion, but as a response which will impact all our life and begin a transformation in our life when we begin to accept him for who he really is the Christ, the Son of the living God.